0: So we're coming close to the end of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, a city, by the way, we had the opportunity to visit while we were in Greece. We did spend some time in ancient Corinth, looking at the ruins, telling the stories, reading the passages. So we're almost through with this lengthy 16 chapter letter. And just by way of overview, because we haven't done it in a while, I thought we could go over the fact that chapters one through six of this letter had to do with, Paul challenging the attitudes of the Corinthians, their attitude of divisiveness, their attitude of putting some teachers above others, their attitude toward sexual immorality, their laxity with that, their attitude toward taking each other to court. And we've talked about all that first six chapters, their attitude of being carnal or fleshy. Chapters one through six, Paul challenges the Corinthian attitudes. But then in chapter seven, all the way through the end, Paul answers the Corinthian questions. They had written to him a number of questions, questions about marriage and divorce and remarriage, questions about eating meat sacrificed to idols, which was meaningful to them in their culture and in their city. Then we had questions, chapters 13 and 12, were on spiritual gifts. How do they operate with spiritual gifts? We learned about diversity and unity and the importance of love in the usage of the spiritual gifts. And specifically, chapter 14 had to do with one specific gift, the gift of speaking in tongues. And we've talked about that. If you're here for the first time or you're not familiar, it's a gift that God gives the ability to speak in a language that you haven't learned previously. We see that happen in the book of Acts in a few places. The problem with the Corinthians is they had elevated that gift far above as more important And really as a spiritual landmark that I've arrived, they've elevated that gift above the other ones. And so in chapter 14, the first part, Paul shows why actually that gift is not as beneficial as the others, specifically the gift of prophecy or the speaking forth of the word of God in the public congregation. So all these things have to do with when the church is gathered together. I don't know about you, but I've just come to love the body of Christ. I love the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, on this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And all throughout history, we've seen the church survive and at times thrive despite persecution through various cultures all over the world, the numbers of expressions. And every so often we look around and we go, how did we get here? I mean, what we do today that we call doing church Church is who we are, not what we do. You know that. So that's why I go out of my way to say, good morning, church. So you recognize that it's not the building, but it's us. And the church exists all through the week. We exist and we're out there operating and living our lives and having relationships. But then on Sunday, the church, the called out ones, gather together to worship God together. And we learn a lot about life in the first century church from this passage in First Corinthians 14. So it's very instructive. It's very informative. And as we look, we go, God, look at what we do today. What do you see when we think about how church functions today? Why do we do things the way that we do? Is it right? Is it good? And I'm always reevaluating based on what I know from the scriptures and what I know about God going, what is this supposed to be when we get together? What's it supposed to be like? And so I think we'll learn a little bit from this section. We've seen how some things have changed over the centuries by necessity, by design, by trend, by culture. Some things are good that they've changed and other things we go, well, maybe we're missing something we need to get back to. So we'll talk about these things as we go through this last section on order in the church gathering. So verse 26, I read it earlier, I'll read it again. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. What I like about what Paul says to them is that when they got together as the church, when they came together, that they expected to participate in the church service together. Did you catch that? He says, each of you, has a psalm. I mean, there's Mildred. And old Mildred, she loves to sing the psalms. And she comes and she says, oh, maybe we should sing this psalm today. Or maybe we should sing this song today. Well, Mildred, who are you? I mean, you're not the worship leader. Or maybe in the early church, we had less professionalism than we experience now. See, I think that's the sense we get that in the early church, they had enjoyed lots of participation by the people in the church service. Now we have a time that experiences more professionalism. The professional pastor brings the sermon. I mean, he's the only one we can trust. And then there's the professional musicians that actually have the songs to bring. But in the early church, you didn't have that. In our church, when this church started, guess what? We didn't have any professional musicians. We had a CD player and a couple of ladies that were willing to lead the music. They could carry a tune better than the others. So we pressed play. And sometimes it was rough. Sometimes it was bad. But you know what? I think it pleased the Lord. I think it pleased the Lord. So there was a lack we see in the early church of this professionalism. But what it opened the door to was participation by everybody. People didn't come like today. When people come to church, when you came this morning, I feel like probably you didn't expect to participate in the service at all. You expect to sit Because there's going to be the music guy and there's going to be the preaching guy and then you soak it in and then you go home. And that's developed. That's our current church culture. We live in a culture of professionalism. You want your kids to learn soccer? You take them to the soccer professional. You want them to learn math? You take them to the math professional. Everybody's a professional and we cart our families around from professional to professional. And I think it's done damage to the church. The idea that the paid pastor is the one who does ministry and everybody else just sits back and enjoys. Notice that that wasn't the way it was In the early church. They, as a group, participated in the church service together. Now, I think today we suffer from a fear or a pressure of perfectionism. Would you say that's true? I'm afraid to participate because what if I get it wrong? I'm afraid to pray. If I said to you, hey, how'd you like to come up and give the sermon? You'd all run headlong for the doors. I don't want to have any of that. But notice, Paul said, some people come bringing a psalm and others would come ready to teach. Not just going, well, there's going to be a pastor, he's going to teach, that's all we have to worry about. There would be others in the church besides just the pastor that would bring something of instruction. And then there would be others that would have a word from God, a revelation. There were those that would speak in tongues and all this was happening. But I get a sense that for us, again, the challenge is that we've come to expect little of our own participation in the church services. And part of that is by just the nature of the size of the church meeting. And Sunday morning is just one part of the gathering of the church. There's other places and times. That's why we say, hey, small groups, home Bible studies are a great place where, yeah, maybe you can't participate in that way on a Sunday morning, but on a Tuesday night Bible study with a group of friends and families, that you can come expecting to contribute to what's happening. Whether that's a song that you like, that God's put on your heart that week, you've been singing it, can't get it out of your head. Hey guys, can we sing this? Yeah, I love that. And sometimes, well, for us, it's a direct result of these passages our communion Sunday night services. How many of you have ever been to our communion service on Sunday night? That's a time where I'm not the professional, I'm not the guy bringing the sermon. We give opportunity, open microphone for people to come and share a word from God, a prophecy, something that God is teaching them, an instruction, a testimony. And that's what we do on communion Sunday, because I think that it's important that you all get a chance to participate. Now, again, I know you know how dangerous it is to give somebody a microphone. So we guard that thing, because if you give it to Bob, or James, they're gonna run away with it, and that's the last thing, you're never getting that microphone back again. And so there's these dangers. There's the danger of the feeling of perfectionism. Like, if I don't get it right, then the world is gonna collapse. But I wonder, you know, how many of you have children that have drawn you a picture? They were at school, and they drew a picture, and they bring it home, and they show it. You don't go, oh, that's terrible. It's a lousy picture. Come on, you're six, you should do better than that by now. There's a sweetness in the offering, isn't it? And I think God feels that way when his people come ready to participate and contribute to the worship time. Uh, I don't pray King James English like that person, and I'm not as fluent in my speech as maybe Pastor Steve is, but that doesn't mean you have nothing to offer. And I hope and I pray that as you show up various places in church, in church life, that you come expecting to contribute something. There's a fear of getting it wrong. For other people, it's just a disinterest in seeking God altogether. If I said, hey, if I pointed you out and said, hey, why don't you come on up here and tell us what God has been teaching you lately? You might not have anything to share because you've not been in the Word. God's not been teaching you anything lately. And so that's another reason there's fear. The problem in the Corinthian church, they had too much participation. So Paul had to limit it. We have the opposite problem. And their participation, the problem was not that they were building each other up, their problem was that they were building themselves up. They wanted to be recognized. And that's why Paul says, it's great that you guys all bring something to the church service, but let everything be done to build up others, not just so you can be recognized. So you see, we know this from the challenges that the Corinthian church has had. If we do church right, then I think you should leave the gathering, whether it's a small group, midweek Bible study, Sunday morning, I think you should leave feeling and experiencing having been built up encouraged and taught and challenged. I think that's how we should go out. So the question for the Corinthians is, well, how should they operate so that people are being encouraged and their church service hasn't devolved into some kind of dog and pony fiasco? So remember, the problems that the Corinthians faced are not too dissimilar from some problems and issues that the various arms of the church today experience. So Paul brings some limitation He says, verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Remember, speaking in tongues is useless in the corporate gathering unless someone can tell you what's being said. So he says that there be two or three at the most, each in turn, notice that, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, Couple things. Number one, underline, keep silent. Just put a little underline. We're going to notice that. We're going to pay attention to it and we're going to come back to it later. So he says the first limitation is on the gift of speaking in tongues. The tongue speakers can't dominate the meeting. That was the gift that they had elevated. That was the gift that they valued. And it seems that when you went to church in Corinth, you had this outbreak of everybody speaking at one time in unknown languages. And it was just mayhem and confusion and a fiasco. Are you following that? We have to read between the lines here. So Paul doesn't say, we'll knock it off, quit speaking in tongues altogether. He says, we just need to limit it for common sense reasons. So he says, let two or three do it. So you might show up that day and not have an opportunity because Bob and Joan got to share. So that day you didn't get to share. And when the people that are going to share in the service do it, they do it one at a time, not speaking over each other. And he says, if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent. Let him speak to himself and to God. But pastor, when the spirit of God moves me, I mean, now how can I, I just can't hold it back. I gotta let it rip. I mean, this seems that Paul is being, I mean, come on. I think Paul is being a little unspiritual here, don't you? I mean, if God is moving in my life, it gives me something to say, well, I just have to say it. Maybe you don't. There is a time to speak and there is a time to keep silence. Oh, isn't that nice to think about? So he puts limitations on the tongue speakers. Now he's going to put limitations on the prophets, those that are speaking, revealing the word of God to the congregation. Now remember, Paul had already said, hey, tongues is a more minor gift. Prophecy is a major gift. But that doesn't mean the prophets get to run away with a microphone either. That doesn't mean they get to dominate the meeting either. So he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Does he mean the other prophets? Does he mean the other people in the church? We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that number one, the prophets aren't gonna dominate the meeting, only two or three of them, even though it's a really valuable gift. You know, how many of you understand enough is enough? Enough is too much. So for common sense, it's just to have two or three speakers, I mean, the mind can only comprehend what the seat can endure. So there's a limitation on how many people are called on to speak during the service. And what they say has to come under scrutiny. Just because somebody wears a three-piece suit, carries a Bible, drives a fancy car and has a TV show and calls themselves the prophet so-and-so doesn't mean they're a true prophet. There were and there are false prophets. Are you with me, church? So you have to, they had to decide if what was being said was in line with the word of God or not. Just because they said it, and even if they gave the Holy Spirit credit for it, doesn't mean it's true. You have to be a fruit inspector. You can always judge a tree by what? The apple tree all winter long can claim to be a pear tree. But when we will know the truth is when spring happens, it buds and the fruit starts to grow, then we'll know the truth. If you got apples hanging on your branches, you're an apple tree. And if you got pears, you're a pear tree. It is what it is. And you have to be willing to say that and to not come under the spiritual pressure, like how dare you challenge what I said because the Holy Spirit led me. Maybe it wasn't the Holy Spirit leading you. So two or three prophets speak, the others judge, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. I mean, this is radical. This is huge. So somebody's preaching, speaking the word of God, and then someone tugs on his toga and says, hey, I feel like the Lord has something he wants me to share. So speaker number one doesn't say, hey, shut up, I got the floor right now, it's my floor. He gives deference to the other person and says, okay, I'll stop speaking and you can have a turn. Isn't that wonderful? This is how it looks when people love each other and utilize the gifts of the Spirit. Now, so if anything is revealed to another who sits by, then the first keeps silent. That one gets a chance to speak. And for you, verse 31, the two or three prophets, you can all have a chance to prophesy, not over top of each other, but one at a time. So everybody can hear what's being said listen it and consider it, and hopefully grow from it. That's what Paul says. You can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. That's what church is, at least in part, about. We come not for, again, some kind of mayhem, Holy Spirit, disjointed meeting, but we come so we can learn and be encouraged and grow. And order fosters that kind of atmosphere. Now, again, I know the danger of giving the floor to somebody else. It's scary to hand the microphone away. At our communion Sunday nights, we do it because we believe it's important to give people the grace and the freedom to share what God is doing in their lives. Now, is it risky? Yes, it is. But I think the risk is far better than the denial of the opportunity. I'd rather take the risk and work it through as a family than to just cut it off altogether and say, we're only going to have one professional and one professional musician and one professional speaker. And I think that denies the usefulness of everybody in the church to have a participation in the life of Christ. So that's why we do it. Reading this passage, being moved by what Paul is saying, by being moved by the early church, we said, hey, let's have a special service Sunday morning, This is a tough place to do it because not everybody here is a believer. Some people are coming, they're checking it out. It's a new thing. And it's just not a good appropriate time to do that. But our Sunday night communion service times are just so sweet and a great opportunity to come ready to participate. So some people are judging what's being said and other people are speaking one after the other, not over each other. And it fosters learning and encouragement. And that should be the result of us coming together. Now, there's been an underlying current under all this that I'm going to address in just a second. Look at verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. See, that's the big misunderstanding. They would have said the spirits of the prophets are subject to the spirit of God at all costs. In other words, when the spirit of God takes over my life, that I have no control over that. As a matter of fact, certain parts of the charismatic or Pentecostal churches would actually think the meeting was more spiritual the more out of control it was. Because that's a sign that the Spirit of God is really moving. I mean, you've got people being slain in the Spirit over here and you've got other people praying over here and someone's singing back there and someone's laying on the ground. Have you been to a church like that? I have, I've seen it. You've seen videos of it, whatever. And the Spirit of God has given credit for all that, but clearly they've never read 1 Corinthians 14. The knowledge is power. And there are some things that you might think are the Spirit of God, and they're not. He says the Spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God does not take control of your life, take over your freedom, and derail your personal will. Think about when the Spirit of God descended on Jesus after his baptism. How did the Spirit of God descending on Jesus get described? As a massive torrent and hurricane, or gentle like a dove. Oh, gentle like a dove. When the Spirit of God moves in a person's life, it is not this raging torrent of -of out-of-controlness. It's gentle like a dove. And that's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. They had it backwards. And Paul reminds them, for God is not the author of confusion or instability, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints." I was at a pastor's conference last year. It was 200 pastors. And the guy who was hosting the conference gave a chance for all the pastors to stand up. It was pastors and some other church workers and passed the microphone around and said, I just want you to tell what's your name, where's your church, and what's God doing right now in your ministry? Now, give the microphone to a room full of pastors and see how that goes. I mean, we ain't never getting out of here. But he had wisely downloaded some sort of time bomb app that had like a 90 second timer on it. So on the screen, as soon as the microphone was passed to the next person, the fuse would start to go. And in 90 seconds, the bomb would go off. And that was an indicator that your time is up. So some of the guys did great with it. Others did horribly with it. And I tell this story because one pastor began to speak and just kept going and going and going. Of course, the bomb goes off and blows up and, and he's still going, And he said, in the midst of all the pastors, he said, well, you know, when the Spirit of God just gets a hold of you, you just got to say it. And wisely, the pastor running the meeting said, that ain't the Spirit of God. Spirit of God gave you 90 seconds. (laughs) And the Spirit of God is ready to move on to the next person at this point. So somehow, for the sake of the Spirit, in the name of the Spirit, we put aside love and deference and sensitivity to others. And we call it the Holy Spirit, but Paul is saying, look, God is not the author of confusion. So if you see confusion, if you're part of a church service where it's just mayhem, a fiasco, and confusing, disorderly, then you can know that that's not God producing it. That's man producing it. Are you with me, church? They would have felt The Corinthians would have, that their meeting was very spiritual. But Paul says, it's not just you guys. None of the churches act like you. All the other churches experience great peace when they come together in their meetings. Gordon Fee, a commentator, said, the character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. The way we gather, the way we worship, says a lot about the God we worship. And so I got to thinking, when a person comes into Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, What do they learn about God before we ever say a word just by watching the way we worship? Do they learn about a God of joy? Do they learn about a God of reason and rationality? I don't know. I just ask the questions. I ask myself these questions. God, look at what we do. What do you see that pleases you? Do you see anything that displeases you? And as I read the word, my hope as a pastor is to have a gathering that pleases the Lord. That involves loving each other. It involves unity, it involves harmony. It involves teaching and instruction and participation from the whole church. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches. So I think we can end there. Verse 33, we can stop there. No, we're not gonna stop there. As much as I'd like to, uh, we have <laughs> verse 34. Paul goes on to say, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Self-explanatory to me, I don't know. (laughs) They are to be submissive, as the law also says, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church oh, okay, wait, Pastor, do we really believe that? I mean, come on, Pastor, you had me, but now you got some splaining to do. Now, remember, context is king. And it's very easy, and many have taken this verse, yanked it out of its context, and meant it to say that women can never talk in church. They're to be seen but not heard. Some of you have been to a church like that. Now, I will tell you that during the time when we're in church, all of you keep silence. I'm speaking, you're quiet. Everybody's keeping silent, And that's a good thing because the Holy Spirit doesn't interrupt himself. And right now, I have the platform and think of how disruptive it would be if everybody began to interrupt what was being said. Then no one could learn. It would be difficult. So we have to keep a couple things in mind. Number one, again, that context is king. Uh, But it seems that there was a specific issue related to the women that had developed in the church. Now, first of all, remember that in chapter 11, what did Paul say to the women? They were clearly prophesying in the church gathering. The problem was they had thrown off some issues regarding modesty and submission to their husbands. So Paul wasn't correcting the fact that they were prophesying, speaking forth the word of God in the church service, just bringing some constraint under them in terms of modesty and culture. So Paul can't be saying this as a blanket statement that women are never to speak out in the church gathering. Are you with me in that? Or Paul would be contradicting himself three chapters earlier. So that can't be it. So what is happening? Well, again, as I said, evidently, we see this word, let your women keep silent. We've seen that twice already. We've seen that with the tongue speakers. He said, well, you're speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter, what are the tongue speakers to do? They're to keep silent. Oh, but what if there's someone prophesying and someone else has a word from God, then the first one should keep silent. Because some look at this passage and say, well, we believe maybe a scribe added it later. It doesn't seem to fit here. I think it fits perfectly here with the topic that Paul is addressing having to do with order versus confusion during the church gathering. So again, we don't know the exact situation, but we can kind of read between the lines, put some pieces together, and we can make an assumption that during the church service, now the women at that time were not valued in terms of being educated. They were really not part of the public arena. They stayed mostly at home. So the church, Christ elevates the position of women. Anywhere you go culturally where Christ is preached the role and the place of women is elevated. So we see that in the early church. Now the women are learning about God alongside with the men and they're involved in the life of the church. They're involved in ministry. They have gifts just like the men have and all that is happening. But you know, it's easy to kind of overstep boundaries. And it seems like what might be happening is that the women in their newfound freedoms are using the opportunity in the church service to challenge the preaching to challenge publicly what's being taught in a critical kind of way. And that's why Paul says they're not permitted to speak. And it's just the average word used for speaking, to converse, to rabble, to have conversation. So whatever it was that they were doing, and we'll never know for sure, what we do know is it was disruptive to the service. And that's why Paul's addressing it. How did it look? We don't actually know for sure. But Whatever it was, end of verse 34, there was a lack of submissiveness about it. They had sort of commandeered the service in a way and were speaking out of turn, disrupting things. And Paul reminds them of a place of yieldedness. And verse 35, he says, if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. So it may be, again, questioning the teaching, criticizing the teaching with the heart, not being I want to learn something. Questions are great. I love questions. I think that's why you should be in a small group. I think you should be in a small group because this lecture format is the worst possible way of learning. It is what it is because of size and because of convenience. It is what it is. But you will get so much more out of what we do here if you tag this on to a small group where you can discuss and converse and ask questions and say, you know, when Pastor Steve taught that thing about women keeping silent, I'm not sure I understood what he was saying. And then you can have conversation about it and you can kind of process it. There's a good place and a right place for that, but that place is not here during the lecture. Are we together in that? That's just good manners. And it seems that the women had thrown off good manners and it wasn't that they were asking questions because they really didn't understand and wanted to learn. Paul says, there's a way to address that. And he says, ladies, if there's something that Pastor Steve says during a sermon and you don't get it, you don't follow, you didn't understand, then on the way home, you can say, hey, hubby, did you get what Pastor Steve was saying? And now hubby goes, uh, I was sleeping during that part. What did he say? Did you? It's kind of cool because it puts the responsibility on the wives to ask their husbands, which is kind of cool because we're seeing there wasn't really this professional ministry because now the husband says, well, go ask Pastor Steve. He knows all the answers. And Paul says in that day, and I think it's appropriate in our day, she's going to come ask you. Really? But I don't know anything about the Bible. Well, you better start learning. Get in, dig in and say, you know, honey, I don't know the answer to that, but let's look it up. Let's do some research. Let's do some homework. Guys, you want your wife to come to you with these questions. You want to have spiritual discussion around the dinner table about the sermon from the day. That's a beautiful thing. When families get together on the way home from church, what'd you think of the sermon? Well, I gave it a nine. He was a little bit lengthy today. Not as funny as usual. No, 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 not that. What did you think about the content? Not the delivery. Give me grace. What did you think about the content? Did you agree? Disagree? How did it make you feel? Do you think that you're walking in victory in that area? Do you feel like there's a place God is asking you to grow in that area? These are great questions. This is how you get the word of God deeper into your life by not just leaving here and letting it sit, but leaving here and stirring it up by talking about it. So if the women really wanted to learn something, there was a place and a way for them to do that by engaging their husbands in spiritual conversation. Ladies, he can run, but he can't hide. Ask him questions. Draw him out. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is shameful for women to speak in church, to speak out in that way in a disruptive manner. Are we together in that church? All right. If you've got a different meaning, you can go for it. That's my story. I'm sticking to it right here. <laughs> now he says, verse 36, or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it to you only that it reached? Now, is Paul still talking to the women? Possibly, but it seems maybe he's talking to the whole church. Remember, he has a little bit of a difficult relationship with the Corinthians. They challenged his authority. And now they may be, he's assuming, challenging his teaching to them on the subject of order in the church. They're saying, well, wait a second, Paul. We believe that we should all be able to speak out. We disagree with you, Paul. He's assuming that response from them. And he's saying, you disagree with me, really? Oh, did the word of God come from you? Totally sarcastic. Oh, did the word of God originate with you, Corinthians? That was their pride. They felt like, well, we are the final word on what God says. Have you ever met anybody like that? Like somehow they think that the word of God originated with them and they're the final authority on what's being said. That's how the Corinthians were. Or was it you only that it reached? Very sarcastic if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. How do you tell if someone's really spiritual? They might say they're spiritual. They might say they're a prophet. But the only way to really tell is if they acknowledge and agree with the writings of scripture, the Bible. If it lines up, then hey, pretty good. So Paul says, there are those that are stepping away from the Bible. That's when we get into trouble. That's when churches get into trouble. So you've now got information to know what a church service is gonna look like. Because there's a lot of churches that when you walk into the church, you think they've never read this chapter because it's mayhem. It's confusing and it's disruptive and I can't learn anything there. And you say, well, that's clearly not of the Lord. And now you know, because we've read it right here, in First Corinthians 14, and we agree that, hey, this is what the Lord is saying. Paul is being used by God to bring a word to the Corinthians. But verse 38, if anyone is ignorant, then let him be literally ignored. If someone's fighting against this, if someone's disagreeing with Paul, then he says, just ignore them. Let them be ignored. And now he wraps it up. He brings the conclusion, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Would you say you go home and you pray, God, I want to prophesy. I want to be used by you to speak your word to an individual, to my small group. I want to be open. I want to be a conduit for truth. That's what Paul says to them, desire to prophesy. Do you desire to prophesy or would you rather just not say anything? I mean, I'd rather just sit back and just spectate. That's not what you're called to do. You're called to participate, not spectate. So desire to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. So tongues are not encouraged, but they're also not prohibited. And his conclusion, verse 40, let all things be done, or literally keep doing everything. I command you to keep doing everything decently and in order. So in a beautiful and orderly manner. That's the way God is glorified. He doesn't say, I command you to stop everything and just have a professional do it. He says, I command you to keep doing everything, keep speaking in tongues, but only with an interpreter. Keep sharing prophecy, keep sharing instruction, keep sharing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Keep doing all that, but just let it be done in a decent and an orderly fashion. You know, it's funny how we are as human beings. Sometimes we reject one extreme only to go, the other extreme. So there is a sense in which some groups have this massive confusion that they call a spiritual worship service, and Paul says that's wrong. But the flip side is also wrong, where the service becomes so rigid that there's no room for any difference or any change or any kind of departure from the program. And that's wrong too. So I think that that middle ground that we try to enjoy and embrace, especially at our communion services, is to have organized flexibility. How does that sound? Can you deal with organized flexibility? We want to leave the door open for the Spirit of God to work through His church. Sometimes that's risky, but I think it's worth it. Because when the body of Christ ministers to itself, it's a beautiful thing and God is glorified. So maybe the challenge is for you, to break out of the mindset that church is something I just uh, spectate at. And maybe you can begin to pray. How can I participate? Maybe I can begin to pray. God, I desire to be used in a new and a different way in the body of Christ. I don't want to just come and show up and go home. Who needs that? But I'm part of the living, breathing body of Jesus Christ. And I'm not here by chance. And I'm not here for vacation or recreation. I'm here to be part of this organism called the church. So I don't know where you find yourself with that. You can't just leave it here. Am I being used to participate? Look, I don't want my grave to say, here lies Steve. He was utterly selfish. I want my life to count for something. Don't you? And when you share something of God with another person at just the right time, it's a rush. Wow, God really used me. And that's encouraging then you expect God to use you again. And you say, wow, God is real and he's alive and he's working through his people. But you'll never find that out unless you're willing to speak, willing to be used. So we are encouraged. And I think that's what church should be like, don't you?